This past summer, Pastor Vince and I have been working with a group of about 30 men, teaching them to preach. It's been a great joy to my heart each week to see three men stand in a pulpit and do probably one of the scariest things they've ever done in their life, which is open the Word of God, preach, and then sit there while Vincent and I pick them apart (laughs) publicly. But I greatly appreciate their desire to to learn the Word of God and to be able to communicate it in a clear and compelling fashion. This whole summer preaching lab, as we call it, has been placed in the book of Philippians. That's the book we assigned to them to study. They chose various passages of that book to prepare and to stand and to preach. In the second chapter of that book of Philippians... The Apostle Paul gives us an amazing illustration of what it means to be humble. He draws upon the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the supreme example of what it means to live not for yourself, but for someone else. And Paul goes on to say there in the second chapter of Philippians that as a result of the willingness of Jesus to come and to humble himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross, that God will highly exalt him. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that hasn't happened yet. We don't live in a world yet that is bowing at the feet of Christ and is willing to confess that He is Lord over creation. But that day is coming. That day, beloved, is absolutely coming. And to bring in that day, there will be a dramatic change of events. Through a seven-year period of time, unimaginable horror will sweep across this planet, leaving mankind no place to hide. I've entitled this message, The Retribution of God. The Retribution of God. And it is another in our series of things to come. Seven prophetic events awaiting fulfillment. I call it the Retribution of God It's commonly known as the tribulation. The tribulation. The word tribulation in the Greek means affliction or anguish or distress. It will be a time of anguish, affliction and distress that will come across this whole world until man's rebellious heart is broken. The prophets speaking of this coming time often liken it to the time of labor that comes upon a woman prior to bringing a child into the world. Labor pains that begin small and then grow in intensity and closeness together, the frequency until that final moment of anguish when a new life comes into this world. Well, according to the Word of God, these afflictions come to us or to this planet, I should say, in the form of seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls.
angels. And the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, lay out that sequence, seals, trumpets, and bowls. Each one more intense than the one preceding it. Each one pouring out more horror upon this planet. As a result of breaking these seals and unleashing these trumpets and pouring out these bowls, the Scripture tells us there will be wars that will ravage this planet. Following these wars will come famines. The Scripture says the price of food will increase eight times in the midst of the famine. Following the famines come plagues. And that's not too hard to understand, for we can see that today with our own eye. Famine brings on plagues and pestilences. Disease goes rampant across this world. Earthquakes, the Scripture says. Firestorms. Meteor impacts that cause tidal waves that wipe out one-third of the shipping upon the planet. Solar winters followed by intense scorching heat where men can find no place to hide or relief from the intensity of the wrath of God that is poured out on them. Droughts. The drinking water on the planet is polluted and dried up and unavailable for the inhabitants that are suffering under the scorching heat of the sun. And were that not enough, God literally opens the pit and outpour a vast demonic army like a swarm of locusts pouring across the planet Afflicting and torturing mankind. These events and many more fall like hammer blows upon the inhabitants of this planet. Yet the scripture tells us rather than repent, rather than turn to God, rather than to call out for him to have mercy upon them, they instead harden their hearts. They deepen their rebellion and billions upon billions of people are slaughtered across this planet. Why? You ever ask yourself that question? Why? Why does God deal so harshly with the earth? This morning we're going to begin to look at two fundamental reasons. Two fundamental reasons for the tribulation. So that we would understand why Christ subjects the world to such a horrific time. A time, the Scripture says, that is unknown up until that very day. I've given you a handout in your bulletin in which I've recorded a good portion of what I'm going to say to you this morning. You can follow along on that if you like, or you can just listen, and you'll have that for your own reference. Two fundamental reasons this morning for the tribulation. We're only going to begin to look or look at that first reason. That first fundamental reason for this horrific time of judgment to come out upon the earth and its inhabitants. And that reason is to recover the earth. To recover the earth. That is the first fundamental reason the Scripture gives us for the tribulation. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, page 1228, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. 
There is a major shift in the text that occurs in the book of Revelation at the end of chapter 3. The Apostle John has given seven letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And the text changes here in chapter 4. And John is carried in the Spirit into the very throne room of God where he has this incredible vision of the end times. God gives to him, John records for us, the end of the story. We know how it's going to end. And beloved, as we read it, it is a horrifying, a horrifying time. John there in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation witnesses in a most amazing event as he is ushered into the throne room of God. Let me read the text. After these things I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance." And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion. And the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art Thou, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. What a scene. What a powerful scene. The thrice holy God, sovereign and eternal, sitting upon his throne, surrounded on all four sides by four exalted angelic beings that day and night proclaim his glory. And beyond that, 24 more thrones, it says, upon which sit the 24 elders, whom I believe represent the raptured church of Jesus Christ there in the throne room of God, witnessing the events that are about to take place. Chapter 5, verse 1. And there in the right hand of God Almighty is a scroll sealed with seven seals. And they saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. 
and a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and have purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them say to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In the right hand of God. In the right hand of God. In the very throne room of glory. Sits this this scroll. Sealed with seven seals. And no one. No one is found worthy to open the scroll. The universe is searched. In the heaven. In the earth. And under the earth. And no one is found worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to reveal its content. And the prophet John begins to weep. He begins to weep. The angel says to him, Stop your weeping. Stop your weeping. Because in strides Jesus Christ, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Root of David. A lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And he stretches out his hand and he takes the scroll. He takes the scroll. Men and angels fall at his feet. And they begin to proclaim his glories. Heaven resounds with the voice of those offering praise to Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 6, the Lamb begins to unroll the scroll. 
He begins to break the seals one at a time. And as these seals are broken, judgment begins to pour out on this earth like blows from a hammer. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? Like everything else in the book of Revelation, we must go back into the Scriptures to find the answer to these questions. The book of Revelation is the fulfillment of the revelation of God. It is the end of the story. It is the conclusion that all that has gone before, all that leads up to it, finds its fulfillment here. We must go all the way back. All the way back. Back into that dark part of the Old Testament. The flyover zone. To the book of Leviticus. To the book of Leviticus. I'm not going to turn you there. You can check this on your own. I will merely set your context for you. But there in the book of Leviticus, we find the background for this amazing vision of the scroll of God that is progressively unrolled. Back in Leviticus chapter 25. There in Leviticus 25, as God is giving to His His newly redeemed people Israel the law by which they will live under His theocratic rule. And He speaks to them about the land. And he says to them in verse 23 of Leviticus 25 that the land belongs to him, that God is the owner, and accordingly he will restrict their ability to use it and to sell it. It is not theirs. It is God's. And so in this chapter, God establishes the rules for buying and selling the land. In light of that ancient year of Jubilee, do you remember that? The year of Jubilee, it came every 50th year after seven Sabbaths of years. The 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the time in which all land holdings reverted back to their original owners. You see, the people of Israel did not own the promised land. They do not own it today. It is God's land, and God gives it to who He chooses. But God never gives it permanently. It was given to the people of Israel as a tenant ownership. They are tenants upon the land of God. In fact, when an Israelite family sold the land, what they were really doing was selling the years of productivity that could be derived from that land up to the year of Jubilee. If there were ten years to go until Jubilee when the land reverts to its original owner, then you would sell the economic value of ten harvests from that land. That would be its value. And at the end, when Jubilee came, the land reverts back to its ownership. This was God's system and method to provide for the people in the event of mismanagement or poverty that might force the sale of the land, there was always the year of Jubilee in which it would come back. But something else is revealed in that chapter. 
And that is if the land has to be sold because of poverty or because of mismanagement, there is the requirement of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. That is the nearest living relative to that person who had to sell the land. They were obligated to purchase that land and ensure that it remained within the family. The kinsman redeemer. The redemption price for the land, again, was the sum of money's equivalent to the rent on that land until the year of Jubilee. When the kinsman redeemer would buy the land from his poor relative, he would not then just turn around and give it back to that man. He would retain it himself. He would farm it. He would do what he wants with it until Jubilee when it would be returned. Over in Numbers chapter 36 and in verse 9, God restricts not only the ability to sell the land, but He also restricts inheritance rights relating to the land. He says that the land, the family land, cannot be transferred from one tribe of Israel to another. It must remain within its original tribal allotment. The land belongs to God. The land of Israel belongs to God. And God establishes how it can be used. I'm going to turn you to Jeremiah chapter 32. Page 790, Jeremiah 32. To illustrate. To illustrate the practice of the kinsman redeemer. We see it played out before our eyes in Jeremiah chapter 32. And not only do we see the practice of the kinsman redeemer and as it relates to the land played out, we also see the mechanism by which the transaction is legally documented. And that's critically important for our understanding of Revelation chapter 5. Beginning verse 6 of Jeremiah chapter 32. And Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is in Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and he said to me, Buy my field, please, that is in Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Verse 10, and then I signed and sealed the deed. And I called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahasiah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. What's going on here? Jeremiah is the kinsman redeemer to his cousin. His cousin Hanamel has a field. He needs to sell it. He needs the money. 
So he comes to Jeremiah as the kinsman redeemer. And he says, you are the one, Jeremiah, to buy this field. And so Jeremiah fulfills his obligation as a kinsman redeemer to buy the field. And then like real estate transactions today, it has to be documented. It has to be set down. The terms and conditions of the transaction have to be recorded, including a description of the property in case there's any question or dispute later on. All of these things are very familiar to us. We do the same type of thing today. In their day, the way it was done was the transaction was written down on two scrolls. It was two identical scrolls in which all the terms and conditions, including the description of the real property, was written out. One of these scrolls would be rolled up and would be sealed with either wax or soft clay that would bear the insignet ring of those who were called as witnesses. This sealed scroll normally would be put in some sort of a jar or place of safekeeping. And then there would be the other scroll that would remain open for inspection. The open scroll could be read by anybody who had a right to know, anybody who wanted to know who was the tenant possessor of this land, who owned the land. Who owns that plot of land? You're walking down the path and you see a a field sitting there. I wonder who owns that. Well, today, if you want to know who owns a particular parcel of land, you can go and there are public records and you find these things out. The same thing was true in Israel. You want to know, you're walking along, you see this barley field. I wonder who owns that barley field. You can go and there's an open scroll in which you can read and see who owns it. You also know how much you paid for it. Just like today. But since this open scroll can be tampered with, the terms and conditions could be altered or changed, it can't be the secure record. It can't be the permanent record. It's not notarized in today's parlance. Therefore, the sealed scroll remains as the perfect and pure record. If there's ever a dispute, if there's ever a cause or a case to argue about who really owns this land, then they can go to the sealed scroll, break open its seals, and read the terms of the transaction. Now, this is particularly important if the kinsman redeemer lives somewhere distant from the land. Maybe he lives in another part of Israel. Maybe he even lives outside of the nation of Israel. But he is called upon to buy this land to fulfill his kinsman redeemer obligations. And he does so. But he doesn't take immediate possession of the land. He doesn't begin to farm it. He doesn't build anything on it. It sits as a vacant lot. Well, you know what happens when lots sit vacant long enough. Squatters come. Squatters come. And they establish themselves on that property. They begin to assert claims to the real estate themselves. Someone has to be able to determine who owns this land. Now, in the case of Jeremiah, it's a fascinating insight into what's going on in Israel. Here, Both scrolls, sealed and open, are placed in a clay jar to be set aside. And the reason that is, is because the nation is soon to be swept away into captivity. No one will be on the land for 70 years. 
It's also fascinating to me that Jeremiah is called upon by the word of the Lord to buy this land, a land that he cannot take possession of because chronologically, if you're paying attention, Jeremiah is in prison at this time. Jeremiah has been imprisoned and yet he's still buying the land. Not only that, the land itself that he's purchasing in Benjamin is under Babylonian occupation. It's God's promise to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah that someday they will come back into their own land. Just like today, just like today, squatters come and take this land. Foreigners come and take possession of this land and they will need to be forcibly removed someday by the kinsman redeemer. That's the background. That's the background of what's going on in Revelation chapter 5. So let's take a look now at the eviction of the usurper. Evicting the usurper. Because that's what Revelation 5 is all about. Just as the land of Israel belonged to God, so the whole earth is His. He created it and He controls it. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Or Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Or Psalm 47, verses 7 and 8. God is the King of all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Not only does God own the land of Israel, beloved, God owns the whole earth. Why? Because He spoke it into existence. He spoke it into existence. But not only does God own the whole earth, but just as God gave the land of Canaan to the nation of Israel, that they might administer it as tenant owners, He has given the earth to man as our inheritance. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God owns the earth, but God has given oversight of the earth to man. It was given to Adam and Eve. Psalm 115, verse 16, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. 
Mankind was originally to administer the Lord's earth as his representative and in accordance with his commands. Again, hear the words of Genesis. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Adam, Eve were placed into the garden to rule over it, to administer it, to subdue it, to act as God's Official representatives here on earth. But they blew it, didn't they? They blew it. By enticing mankind through Adam to follow him into rebellion and sin, Satan has usurped the administrative control of the earth. When Adam fell, beloved, mankind lost something. He lost his his position as administrator of this earth. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It's actually Luke's words, but it says, And he led him, that is Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Satan had led Jesus up, and the devil said to him, I will give you... All this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. This is the temptation of Christ. Satan says that all the kingdoms of the world have been handed over to him. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 31, Now judgment is upon this earth. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out, the ruler of this world. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is called the ruler of this world. He's called the God of this world. He says to Christ in the moment of his temptation, I own it all and I'll give it to you if you will worship me. And take careful note that Jesus never disputes his claim to offer it. He never disputes his claim to offer it. As a result of Adam's forfeiture, God placed the earth under a curse. Under a curse. But there's good news, amen? There is good news. The good news is that just as God provided Israel a means to recover her land through the kinsman redeemer, so too humanity will recover this earth through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is the one who took on human flesh that he might render the devil powerless. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He is the one who destroys Satan's works. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is our kinsman redeemer. How does he do it? How does he do it? 
You can listen to his own words in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Beloved, the basis of his recovery of this planet is rooted in the cross. It is rooted there in the cross. But its consummation, its actual recovery, awaits what Jesus calls the regeneration. Verse 28, Matthew 19, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I want you to see that expression. In the regeneration. In the regeneration. In the new Genesis. Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David. He will rule this earth with a rod of iron, the Scripture says. He will return things to their original state. And He will restore mankind's forfeited inheritance. This is what we await. This is called the regeneration. This is the final consummation of which the cross is the down payment. What is the purchase price for our kinsman redeemer? How much did he pay to recover this earth? Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and have purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign where? Upon the earth. Upon the earth. How much did our kinsman redeemer pay? Beloved, he paid everything. Everything. He poured out his own precious life. Just as in the days of Jeremiah, when he purchased the field from his cousin and was unable to take immediate possession of the land because it was infested with foreign squatters. So Satan and the members of humanity that are part of his kingdom have been illicitly occupying the earth in the absence of Jesus Christ. We are living in hostile terrain. The whole earth lies in the hand of the evil one. They challenge his right to rule. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
has the power to evict these usurpers. He will do so by breaking open the scroll. The scroll of Revelation 5, the title deed to the earth. And as he begins to open that sealed, official, permanent, unalterable copy of the title deed to this planet, each seal broken progressively, judgment poured out until he has crushed and evicted all enemies. And the earth is his. They will gather it against him. They will gather at a place called Armageddon. And there he will crush them. He will take the Antichrist. And he will take the false prophet. And he will cast them into the lake of fire. And Satan the usurper will be chained and bound into the abyss for a thousand years. Someday, someday, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to me. Listen to me. The difference between those who escape the coming wrath and those who go through it is what will you do with Jesus Christ today? What will you do with Christ today? Today, will you bow your knee by faith? Will you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? Will you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, that he is coming to establish his kingdom? Will you by faith embrace his cross as your atoning sacrifice? Will you give your life to Jesus Christ? Will you do it now? Or will he come and crush you along with all other rebellion? It lies with you. It lies with you. So we close our time together this morning. Do not let these words depart from your heart. Beloved, you close your Bibles, you fold your papers. Do not stuff Jesus in the back of your Bible and walk away. Sron comes and leads us in a final song. The things I've said to you this morning have reached your heart. And you come and you see me. You come here, you come see me. 
You let me open the Word of God with you and show you how you can have life everlasting. Let me pray. Father, Father, grant us the faith that we lack. Soften our hard hearts. Overcome our addiction to our own comfort. The foolishness of pursuing our own agenda. Lord God, impress upon our hearts the seriousness. The seriousness of these things. Oh, Lord God, I ask you right now to extend your hand of mercy and grace to save that one here among us this morning who knows not Jesus Christ, but whose heart is being drawn, who's being compelled, who's being pushed, as it were, to make peace with his Creator. May today be the day you save his soul.